on my mic so that the sound guys don't get me. Good morning. Again, let's see better. <laughs> I suddenly saw both of them like heads jerk up <laughs> back there. Um, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at Kish. If you're visiting with us, extend a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here with us. And if you've been with us the last few months, you're aware of this, but if you're visiting, you're not. We've been preaching through the book of Colossians, but all things must come to an end, and we finished that up last week. And so now we're going to start something new, and we're um, about to launch for the next three months, give or take, into a sermon series on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And so before we dive into the specific text and word for this morning, just a couple of words of context about that. Um, as we preached through the book of Colossians, we got this constant refrain from Paul that Jesus is the center of everything, right? Jesus is our king, it's Jesus who we serve and follow after. And we can say that and agree with that, but I think that we can struggle to know how we are supposed to live that out. We can struggle to know what Jesus even said. Since Jesus is such a significant figure in our world, Almost everybody wants to hook their bandwagon up to him, right? Um, They want to make Jesus kind of the supporter of their set of views and priorities and ideas. And not just they, we can do that too. It is easy for us to kind of remake Jesus to be in our image. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks for himself. In this sermon, he lays out his kingdom priorities, how he wants people who follow him to live, And part of that means that Jesus challenges all of us. Nobody can really read the Sermon on the Mount with any amount of self-honesty and come away feeling like they're nailing it, right? Which is the other thing I want to mention up front. This sermon goes to some challenging places, lots of them. And so as we start the series, and I'll probably repeat this as we walk through it, there's two realities I think we need to bear in mind. One of them is that this sermon is for Christians. This will be clear as we go through the Beatitudes, but Jesus isn't giving some kind of general moral principles by which everyone ought to live. They're not sort of just the things that you do to check some boxes. It is foolish to try to live in the kingdom if you aren't in relationship with the king. And so if you start thinking about these texts and you feel crushed, by the weight of them and our failure to live into them, you have to fly to Jesus and experience his welcome and grace. Jesus is speaking this to people who already exist in gospel relationship with him. And if you try to do the things that he commands here without that foundation of grace, it's going to destroy you. But that said, this sermon is for Christians, that we need to hear it and believe it and seek to live it out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. A new creation. And here, in these three chapters, Jesus lays out a picture of what that new creation is supposed to look like. This is a constitution for the new creation. And if we claim to follow Christ, then we need to make it our constitution too. With that said... Let's look at this first text, and as we do, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you might draw near to all of us um, as we examine your word, that you might speak to us, convict us, and hold up Jesus in our view, that we might cast ourselves on him and seek to live more and more into him. 
I pray all of these things recognizing that we are sinners who need him as we hear these words and that I am a sinner who needs him as I preach them and I pray that you might speak his welcome to all of us. Pray these things in his name. Amen. So near the end of the American Revolution, there was this um, battle, the Battle of Yorktown, right? And um, there's, that was where the, the brilliant general Cornwallis, who was leading the British troops, was finally cut off and captured by combined American and French forces. And in many ways, it was kind of the, the, the great turning point, the great victorious battle that led to us winning the American Revolution. It was the foundation of the Treaty of Paris that was made a few years later. But the story is that as the British surrendered, the soldiers, they were kind of, they, they felt kind of lost, right? The British soldiers. They're acknowledging their defeat at this hand of this kind of upstart colony, and perhaps they're gently mocking General Cornwallis. And so as they're led out of Yorktown as captives, they strike up this old folk tune, The World Turned Upside Down. They go marching out singing this song, The World Turned Upside Down. And it certainly had to seem that way to those soldiers, right? There was one way history had gone, one set of nations that were in power, one kind of direction that people thought the world was headed, but now this whole continent of colonies had shrugged off their parent country's rule and struck out on their own. It was this whole new world for the people experiencing it, a world that many of them seemed upside down. Coming to the Beatitudes... I can't help but feel like there's something similar in the way that they strike me. That the Beatitudes are beautiful, but they're also jarring. That we put them in cross-stitch hangings up on the wall, right? But they're also in many ways revolutionary. That they are turning our world upside down, but we can easily miss it. But I don't think that we can really appreciate that without starting to dive into the Beatitudes themselves. So hold that thought about their revolutionary nature and let's just start walking through them and asking about this upside-down world that Jesus paints. And as we do, I basically just want us to ask two questions, all right? Beatitude means blessing. And so what I want us to ask as we walk through these sayings is who are the blessed and what is the blessing? Who are the blessed, and what is the blessing? First, who are the blessed? So let's set the stage for a minute. Jesus has been healing people and doing some miracles, and so this huge crowd has gathered and started following him. And he looks out at this crowd, and they're waiting to hear what he's going to say, what wisdom he's going to impart, all right? And I write sermons for a living So I can imagine the sorts of things that you're supposed to say, that people would expect you to say, right? That Jesus would get up and maybe he would tell some joke or funny story about fishing or agriculture or something. Or maybe he's going to, they're expecting him to get up and give them a big smile and say, I am just so glad that we could all be together here this morning. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he looks out at them and says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Except that doesn't even capture it because those are some of the most famous words in Christianity and I think all of us are probably too familiar with them. So let me, let me give you a different translation that would be just as fair but maybe is a little more jarring. Jesus looks out at them and the very first words out of his mouth are God is delighted in the spiritually worthless. 
God is delighted in the spiritually worthless. And the Beatitudes go on this way. Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who don't pick fights, even fights they could win. Blessed are those who suffer. This simply does not make sense to Jesus' hearers, right? I mean, it just didn't. Jesus lives in this time, for instance, of revolutionary politics. These horrible tyrants were oppressing Israel and taxing and brutally killing anybody who stepped out of line. And there was revolt in the air. And the faithful were all about kind of seeking out might and strength to defeat these problems. And Jesus praises the meek, the powerless, and the peacemakers. And Jesus lived in a society obsessed with status. Honor and shame were the social currency of the day. People thought of, what people thought of you mattered deeply. And religious people were all about being thought well of. And Jesus praises the persecuted and those who overlook others' failings. Jesus lived in a society where religion was all about the externals, about holding standard. And Jesus praises the pure in heart. And those who are hungry for a righteousness they don't have. The blessed for Jesus are exactly the opposite of who his hearers would think of as blessed. And they're the opposite of who we expect as well. I mean, we can pay the Beatitudes lip service, right? Because we know we're supposed to say they're great. I, I can certainly say, oh yeah, the Beatitudes are great. But I don't know that I actually believe that. I mean, who do I say is blessed? Who do I envy? Who do I wish that I was like? I don't think it's often these people. I say, blessed are those who have everything they need and who have their spiritual acts together. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I say, blessed are the happy and the joyful and those who have easy, upbeat lives. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And I say, blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the successful and the strong who get their way. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And I say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after comfort and success. Or blessed are those who seem to have no weaknesses. And Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I say blessed are people who don't take a guff from nobody and always get their pound of flesh. And Jesus says blessed are the merciful. I say blessed are the well-dressed, the put-together, the successful and outwardly righteous. And Jesus said blessed are the pure in heart. I say blessed are those who win. And Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers. I say, blessed are those who people like and respect and congratulated. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. These people Jesus is blessing are not the people that I or I think any of us naturally think of as blessed. I mean, sure, we might acknowledge that there's something kind of romantically appealing about Jesus' words. We like them in the abstract, But I know in my heart that that's not really what I want. I mean, for instance, is this what I dream about for my kids, right? Do I want them to be peacemakers and meek? Or do I want them to be triumphant and powerful? Do I want them to hunger and thirst for righteousness or for security? Do I want them to be mourned or to be persecuted? 
So before anything else, the Beatitudes challenge us to recognize that Jesus' priorities are different from ours. But to do that, we also need to get our heads around exactly what Jesus is saying. Who are these blessed people? We could ask again. It's one thing to note how kind of countercultural it is, but even just saying that, it can just leave us feeling kind of lost, like we somehow don't get it. And you could spend a sermon on each of these Beatitudes, right? At the church that I was a pastor at before I was here, we actually did that. And maybe someday we will. But, but let me just try to give a couple of common themes as you look at them as a whole. The Beatitudes have this kind of natural split into two groups, all right? Between verses 6 and 7. And so first you have verses 3 to 6. And they describe the way we as believers stand in relationship to God. And the emphasis of these verses is on our humility before God, our humility. So who are the poor in spirit? It's not that they're actually people who are worse spiritually than those around them, but it is people who recognize their spiritual poverty. They compare themselves not to the worst people around them that they can find, which I think is what we do, but they compare themselves to God and his holiness. And they say, man, I really fall short of that. Likewise, those who mourn. Those are people who are being honest about their brokenness and the brokenness of the world around them. They don't pretend like they've got everything handled. Instead, they admit that this life and their lives can be messed up. And the meek, right? The meek aren't meek because they're weaker than other people, right? In order to be meek means that you have power that you're choosing not to use. Rather, they're meek Because they recognize where true power lies. With the king seated on his heavenly throne, they're trusting in God's strength instead of their own. And those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. To hunger and thirst means first that you don't think righteousness is something you've already got. Like the poor in spirit, you recognize your failure, but you are hungry and desperate to grow, to not stay there. What those first Beatitudes bless is people who live life not before men, but before God as their Heavenly Father, in humility before Him. And then in verses 7 through 10, the Beatitudes shift their focus from life in relation to God to life in relation to the world. And they have to do with our living out this God-word relationship that we have with the other relationships we have with people. So the merciful are blessed. Merciful meaning quick to forgive and not giving people what their sins deserve. Because that's foundational to our experience with God. And that's what Christianity is, right? We have a God who is quick to forgive. A God who doesn't give us what our sins deserve. And so we recognize that we ought to seek to be like him in how we treat other people. And the pure in heart are blessed. That doesn't mean the perfect. Although it is those chasing, in a sense, after perfection... But it means people who have dedicated themselves from their inmost parts to following God, not men. To valuing what he values instead of the things the world loves. Though everyone around them might chase after sin, they are seeking faithfulness. And the peacemakers, peace in the Bible means more than just the absence of conflict. It means a commitment to unity and connection and honesty and love. That's how God created the world to work. 
And Jesus is blessing people who seek to restore in their relationships that kind of created order. And those who are persecuted for righteousness, who when given a choice between fearing human beings and fearing God, choose to fear God, to follow after him. And so these blessed people are characterized by being humble and by being holy, by seeking to be like God and live out God's call in their lives. The blessed people are humble and holy. So who are those people, right? That's the question I keep asking. Some people view that list of Beatitudes as a list of virtues, right? That these are the gifts of the Spirit in Galatians or something, that they're good behaviors we're supposed to cultivate. And there's an element of growth in the Beatitudes, I think. But I don't think that's the emphasis, because Jesus isn't saying, you will find blessing if you develop these things. He's saying, you are blessed if you have them. Other people treat this list like a list of spiritual gifts, right? That Bob is a peacemaker, and Susie is poor in spirit. And again, maybe there's some truth to that. I might recognize certain of these things really embodied in certain people's lives, But humility and holiness aren't kind of potluck categories, right? They're kind of all or nothing. You can't be humble if there's some ways that you're really arrogant. Instead, here's what I think. I think what Jesus means the Beatitudes to be is a summary of an idealized way what it means to be a Christian. Not a list of things that Christians should seek or might have one or two of, but the ABCs of the faith. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It doesn't just mean that you hang around the church sometimes or that you think the Bible has some nice things to say or that you check some box on your census form. Being a Christian means first that you and I have humbled ourselves before God. That we have said like the poor in spirit, I am a sinner. I am spiritually bankrupt on my own. That we've wept and mourned over our brokenness. That we have acknowledged that there is no strength in us to save us, but that like the meek, we need God alone to rescue us. That we come to him hungry and thirsty, knowing that it is a righteousness that he offers that we need, not a righteousness that we can provide. Being a Christian means that we are seeking to be holy. There's this idea that was invented about a century and a half ago that you could accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. That you can accept him but not follow his call. And as far as the actual Jesus we find in the Bible is concerned, that idea is just wrong. To be saved by King Jesus necessitates us saying on some level, Jesus is King. Which doesn't mean we've arrived at perfect holiness, right? You don't stop needing to be poor in spirit just because you are seeking to be holy. It doesn't mean that you've arrived, but it does mean that we are called to be hungry and thirsty for it. That we do need to seek to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. That we do need to chase after a heart that is pure and faithful. That we need to pursue peace even when it's hard. And that we will need to be willing to endure shame and mockery for the sake of Jesus' name. It's not the dessert of Christianity. It's not some palate cleanser, right? What Jesus is giving us is a picture of the bread and butter of Christian faithfulness. To humble ourselves and cast our hope on God. And then to seek to live out the lives that he calls us to in this world. Which, as I mentioned at the beginning... 
we have to understand if the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to make sense to us, all right? You cannot do the things that Jesus is soon going to say perfectly. Have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Never get angry with people. Never lust. Never break your word. Never Give and serve without seeking a reward. And a bunch of other commands that he's about to go to. You cannot do those things if you are relying on them to somehow prove you righteous. You can only do them if you were built on the reality of humbling yourself before God and asking him for gospel grace. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves before anything else is whether we have made that choice. Whether we have given ourselves to Jesus in that way. If we haven't, then nothing else that Jesus is going to say matters. Trying to live out the things he's going to say in the rest of this sermon is just not going to work if we haven't first humbled ourselves and cast ourselves on him. So who are the blessed? They are the people who have given themselves to Jesus Christ and who are called his. The person who's believed the gospel and cast themselves on it. That is the person that Jesus is blessing. But we still might be wondering, how is that person blessed? That doesn't actually sound very appealing, right? The person who is doing these things, that, that's not the kind of person that I naturally want to be. If those people are blessed, then maybe it's a blessing that I can do without. Which is why the second question is also important. What is the blessing that Jesus promises? What is the blessing? Put simply, what I think Jesus says in each of these verses, in one way or another is that the person who is blessed receives the kingdom of heaven. They receive the kingdom of heaven. And we need to be careful when we say that, all right? We can hear those words wrong. We can think that Jesus is just saying, we go to heaven when we die, which is true and good, but is not what the kingdom of heaven means. In Luke 17, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about how to tell when the kingdom of heaven is going to come. And Jesus, in verse 20, replies and says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is in your midst. How? In Luke 17, it's pretty clear the kingdom of God is in their midst because Jesus is standing in the middle of them. That he is the king and his kingdom is is made up of all of those who live with his presence as his subjects. Which means that the kingdom of heaven is something that can in real ways be a reality for us right now. Right? Not a final reality. There's this final hope of scripture that we often go to. And we need when Jesus descends as king and the world is made right. And he reigns in peace and mercy on his throne forever. And that is a good future hope but Jesus is also a king with us here today. And through his spirit in our hearts. And through his, his reign as he sits on a throne in heaven right now, we can experience him as king. And being a part of Jesus' kingdom means, according to him, that we are given all sorts of blessings. Right? Maybe not the blessings that we want. There are people who talk, talk about a blessed life, and they mean that they have a nice car and a good retirement savings account. But real blessings nonetheless. I mean, we can see Jesus list them here. We have Christ's comfort in verse 4. 
That we don't have to face this world alone. That God stoops down and is with us and holds us in the midst of it. A God who himself tasted human flesh and suffering. He weeps with us and he carries us as we mourn. And we have the earth as our inheritance in verse 5. And Jesus isn't talk about taking away this world from us, but he's about teaching us how to live in it in a way that causes us to flourish. Where rather than the things of this world consuming us or holding us captive, we're able to enjoy them with freedom in proportion, giving thanks to God. And Jesus fills us in verse 6. He offers us meaning and significance and love. He offers us a righteousness that he earned on our behalf. Meaning and significance and love and righteousness that are far greater than any human accomplishment or relationship or possession could give us. Jesus has shown us mercy, as verse 7 promises. That we don't have to bear the burden of guilt and shame, but our sins are forgiven and we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We get to see God, verse 8 promises. We get to know him. And yes, ultimately, that's about glory when we get to see God face to face. But even now, we can experience the presence of the Lord of the universe. That we can talk with him. That he lives in us and we live in him. That the Holy Spirit is actually inside of us somehow and actually speaks to us and gives us strength and wisdom. And we get to be called God's children in verse 9. In a world where there is so little love and so much cruelty, the Lord of the universe smiles on us as his sons and daughters. That he delights in us and loves us. That is the kind of blessing that Jesus comes to offer. Life in God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The question for us then becomes whether that's the kind of blessing that we seek. We as human beings are all chasing some goal, some hope. We are seeking after, you could say, some kind of heaven. Whether it's religious or not, whether we're religious or not, all of us, I think, have this picture in our hearts of our perfect world, and we make choices based on what that world is like. I mean, just pay attention to advertising, right? I don't know if you've thought about it, but the history of advertising is really interesting. There was this time when what people advertised was products, right? That you would advertise a vacuum cleaner or a cup of coffee, and what you would have is this magazine page that had a picture of a vacuum cleaner or a cup of coffee, and it would have some words on it about that vacuum cleaner or that cup of coffee and why you should buy it. But then something started to change, right? And it's suddenly not just a vacuum cleaner in the ad anymore, but it's a a beautiful woman using the vacuum cleaner while her doting husband sits in the background watching. And that worked really well. And the reason was because while what in theory was being sold was a vacuum cleaner, what they were actually selling you on was youth and beauty and a happy marriage. Why did that happen? It happened because companies realized that what people really want isn't just a product, but a promise of some sort of heaven. I worked for Starbucks for a few years, and Starbucks was actually really honest about the fact that they weren't trying to sell people coffee. That what they were selling people was community and neighborliness. It was leisure and a sort of 
bohemian artsiness that made you seem really appealing and hip without actually making you seem odd or eccentric. And that was why these people, why I was willing and am willing to pay $6 for essentially a cup of steamed milk and dirty water, right? (laughs) Is because I wasn't really looking and am not really looking for that product, but I'm, I'm resonating with that dream. And it's everywhere, right? Toothpaste is about the perfect smile of a successful business person in a power suit with a big expense account. Beer is about youth and irresponsibility and pretty men and women who definitely don't look like they drink the amount of beer that they are. (laughs) Um, Drugs, you know, drugs that are medication, right? Um, it's, it's, It's not about ending the health condition, but it's about you know, sitting out on that, that old swing in your front yard with your almost but not quite model pretty wife, you know, kind of enjoying your retirement together. Everything today is trying to sell us not on a product, but on a heaven, a picture of the blessed life. So what does that blessed life look like when you picture it? Is it acceptance? A crowd of friends and family applauding, looking at you in adoration? Is it security, absolute comfort and protection from anything that could harm you? Is it power, finally being able to show those people who's boss? All of us are seeking some kind of blessing. And the claim of Christianity is not that that is bad, but the claim of Christianity is that any one of those pictures, if you make that your heaven, is going to fail you. It will never satisfy you, and it will ultimately destroy you. Here's what I mean. It's more obvious with some pictures, right? Think about the person who is all about gaining money and power, right? That is their heaven, the ultimate thing, good that they're longing for. That person sacrifices everything on the altar of success, right? Their friends, their marriages, their children, They pour every hour and every drop of sweat into the bottom line. And at the end of the road, one of two things happens to that person. Either they don't climb high enough, and they don't make it, and they end up in despair. They drink and rage and dream about what could have been, or they do get there. They retire with more money than any human being could possibly know what to do with in their savings account, and they find themselves rich and alone. The purpose their work gave them is gone. The people they sacrificed to get where they are are gone. And all they've got is a big house and a bunch of folks jockeying over the inheritance. Right? That's what we mean when we say money can't make you happy. But the same thing can happen even with desires that seem more good to us. Think about about the parent whose whole purpose in life is to have safe, happy children right? Again, not that that desire isn't a good desire, but that is the thing that they're living for. And that sounds good, except that children are fickle creatures, and you can't control them, and you can't control life around you or them. And so what happens, if that is your greatest ambition, is that you wheedle and manipulate and shame your kids to try to keep them as safe as possible. And maybe you succeed But the road it took to get there will leave those kids broken in many ways. They'll be brittle and hurt human beings that will live in fear and shame with lives full of lies and antidepressants. Or you fail, and they rebel, and you're crushed. And maybe they are too. 
Which is, again, not to say that that's not a good desire to have for your kids, but it is to say that nothing in this world is a big enough or stable enough heaven to give you real peace. Nothing in this world can satisfy us in that final way. Either it will fail us and we will be wrecked, or we will succeed and find out that what was on offer isn't really what's there at all. Ultimately, the claim of Christianity is that this happens because those heavens that we imagine, success, money, happy kids, a perfect marriage, whatever it is, those heavens are too small to bear the weight of our hearts. And the only thing big enough to bear that weight is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus offers. That all of our desires for comfort and peace and a sense of fullness and acceptance, that it is ultimately God and the world he is making that is the place that those things can be satisfied. St. Augustine of Hippo famously said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. We mentioned at the outset that Jesus in these Beatitudes seems to be turning the world upside down. He's capsizing our worldly dreams and ambitions of power and control and success and honor. But the reason Jesus is doing that is not because he is some killjoy. It's not because he doesn't want us to have things. It's because Jesus recognizes that only by turning those priorities on their heads can we see the world as it actually is. That by turning the world upside down, he's actually turning it right side up. Our hearts are are restless, Augustine said, because God has made us for himself. God and his kingdom is what we are made for. It is the goal worth living life for. It is the hope that that can't fail. The heaven that is heaven indeed. The key to experiencing God's blessing, the key to living as these kind of broken, bleeding, blessed people that Jesus paints for us in the Beatitudes, is to recognize that we are made for far greater things than the blessings of this world. We were made for communion with our Father and citizenship in his kingdom, which doesn't mean that we give up on those other desires, like we said, but it does mean that we need them to be transformed by an ultimate desire for the kingdom of heaven. Loving your kids is great. Wanting them to succeed is great. But you'll only be able to do it in a healthy way if your ultimate meaning and love and acceptance rests not with how it turns out for them, but rests in your relationship with God. And that's the way it is with everything. A C.S. Lewis once summarized that idea, you aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in, but you aim at something on earth and you get neither. So let's walk into this Sermon on the Mount and into our lives seeking to be such people, people living in the kingdom of heaven, people humbled and seeking after holiness, people discovering the blessings of God's kingdom along the way. Would you pray with me? Well, Father God, I pray that you might teach all of us, teach me how to live into this kingdom. You might humble my heart, teach me to rest and trust in you, and that you would, that you would just allure me such that I long and lean more and more into your kingdom. 
and desire after the things that you offer. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing? <laughs>